Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, Dr. Adriana Popescu here with another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I am honored today to have as my guest, Dr. David Smith. He is recognized as a national leader in the areas of the treatment of addictive disease, the psychopharmacology of drugs, new research strategies in the management of drug abuse problems, and appropriate prescribing practices for physicians. He is the founder of the Hate Ashbury Free Clinics in San Francisco, which merged with Walden House in mid-2011 to form HealthRight 360, which provides services at multiple sites throughout California. Dr. Smith is also the medical director and the chair of addiction medicine for a number of treatment programs here in the Bay Area, including the one where I am working, Avery Lane, and he has served in a variety of capacities as a professor. Um, he's worked with ASAM, the American Society for Addiction Medicine, who's in fact the past president. He has a number of awards. I mean, his CV and bio is uh, incredible. He really has devoted his life to working in the field of addiction medicine, and I'm so pleased to have you here today. He's also an author. He's written books. He's working on his own uh, autobiography, which I'm excited to hear more about. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Adriana, and I, I, I love your, your enthusiasm, and I love seeing you. I, it's wonderful working with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. I, I always like to um, invite the guests to get let us know them a little bit better by just sharing their story. And you don't have to go into great detail or anything like that, but tell us a little bit about your own story and how you ended up doing this work. Well, I'm, I'm here in uh, the Ashbury District of San Francisco where I've lived, you know, since 1960. Uh, when I was in medical school, I was also in uh, uh, graduate school in pharmacology and studied psychopharmacology. Uh, I was a local drug expert when the drug revolution hit the Haight-Ashbury and uh, got deeply involved in, first of all, developing a regional clinic. But it was the concept was rejected by the health department. It was kind of like hippies go home. I don't want you around here. And I, my grandparents were farm workers from Oklahoma, and I had that uh, trauma of discrimination in the background there. And so I w went outside the proven path, started a free clinic uh, for that population. The motto was "Healthcare is a right, not a privilege," which was uh, very focused at that time, became the motto of the National Free Clinic movement, and now is used nationwide. So uh, this was not the typical path that I planned when I was born and raised in Bakersfield, but here I am. And uh, one of the key aspects, we, you and I have talked about this, is uh, when I was getting 
you know, should I go back into the establishment or should I get into the counterculture and do this free clinic work? I took LSD and had a spiritual experience and uh, the psychedelics have had a potent impact on my life and continue to have a potent impact on my life as I now in the third psychedelic revolution, I'm exploring uh, the use of psychedelic medicine for refractory conditions. I, I very much believe that the new frontier Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something I really wanted to talk about with you because you are right there on the forefront of knowing what's happening and you, you know, you, you do your symposium every year and when I, when TJ and I spoke at your symposium a couple of years ago pre pandemic, the other big part of that day was talking about the, the more recent wave, if you will, yeah, of psychedelic assisted therapy and you had uh, Rick Doblin on and some other experts. And then there were some research projects here, you know, from different people around the country. UCSF, I know, is doing some stuff. Can you, let's start there. Tell us more about what is happening with this movement of this huge resurgence in interest and research on psychedelic therapies. Well, as you know, Adriana, uh, there are many different paths to discovery of what, what works for all these disorders that we deal with. You and TJ are on a path, uh, which I very much, I like the book, your book, uh, uh, Conscious Recovery, and I'm a participant in your workshop. Uh, you have different techniques for sympathetic re-regulation, which is tapping and brain spotting, and a totally different path psychedelics have tended to prove the same type of thing. For example, in the brain, there's the thinking part of the brain. And then there's the primitive part of the brain. And the thinking part of the brain remembers about 15%. The primitive part of the brain, sorry. The primitive part of the brain remembers 100%. The body remembers 100%. And so what they found with trauma, which is your specialty, uh, this came up on our last webinar by Robin Cathartheid Harris, who's the professor of psychedelic medicine at uh, UCSF, that there is this uh, receptor in the brain that psychedelics interact on. It's called 5-HT2A1 receptor. And that receptor tends to process uh, uh, incoming sensory stimuli and uh, perception. And it, uh, psychedelics are what's called 5-HT2A receptor antagonist, shut it down. Trauma is a 5-HT2 receptor agonist, it activates it. And we presented some very interesting uh, uh, brain scans to show that activation of that encapsulates the trauma and fixes a belief system. It kind of walls it off neurochemically. Now, clinically, the term that you introduced to me was trauma capsule. So what's happening, mm -hmm. it can, your type of clinical work and the neurobiological work 
uh, in coming up with why, for example, psychedelics work with PTSD. Because what, what the, by deactivation of that receptor, those, that, those capsules come down and then the trauma comes out. And they have these brain scans that show all the neurons are activated throughout the brain. Trauma narrows it and, and fixes it in place, which is a good thing because if you had to deal with trauma on a daily basis, you couldn't function. The psychedelics break the walls down, activates all areas of the, of the brain and out this comes. And that's also the source of bad trips. A lot of people take the psychedelics recreationally and then bad stuff comes out. But then the techniques that you're using, uh, the energy psychology, the tapping, brain spotting also focuses on those areas of the brain. And then it's quite fascinating to me. He found that uh, mindfulness and yoga also decrease activity in that receptor and fit into this area of the brain called the default mode neural network. So you have the kind of a teeter-totter in the brain hyperactive, anxiety, depression, rumination, decreased activity, serenity, peace. And so what, what we're finding, of course, what you and I talk about a lot at Humane with our patient population is you take your clinical techniques, I learn from them, and then I present the neuroscience and go that way, and we come up with an integrated team approach. Uh, the, the treatment yeah. field tends to be very rigid. You know, this is the way we've always yeah. done. Not going to do anything new. And uh, I guess if you got a hundred percent success rate, that'd be okay. Well, we're not. The problem's getting worse, so we need to, to try yeah. new approaches. So. And I love that you brought that up because I, I agree with you. I think we have lived in a fragmented treatment system, you know, for many years where even addiction and mental health have been treated separately with separate funding and insurance has different rules around funding mental health treatment than it does around substance abuse treatment and, and all these different things. There's been a lack of parity and there's been a lack of integration, you know, for a long time. And you're really advocating, you know, as am I, for more integration and more collaboration. And I love that science with the brain scans and everything is finally catching up to what we clinicians have often known for a long time about the techniques. Like we know they work, but science is now explaining to us how it works in the brain. Right. Yeah, and that's mm -hmm. important to get mainstream acceptance of these, these, these techniques because our, our treatment field is still rigidly controlled by insurance and if it's not validated it's not accepted and uh right. that's the reasons i like working at, at a program like Avery lane where you have integrated care and uh because mm -hmm. the problem we're dealing with is getting worse particularly during the pandemic yeah. isolation right. and the, that's despair and the overdoses so we've got to try uh you know this don't do the standard stuff, but then try additional things to better understand what's happening in society. Yes. So let's talk about that. So for, for the audience who doesn't know, Avery Lane, where, where Dr. Smith and I work together, is a women's drug and alcohol 
rehab clinic here in the Bay Area where we specialize in the treatment of trauma. Um, Dr. Smith, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, without necessarily getting too sciencey, because <laughs> I know that for me, some of it goes over my head even, um, but what, you know, you do teach our clients, as do I, about some of the basics about br the brain and what happens to a brain that's been traumatized or what happens to a brain where there's addiction processes going on. And what do we now know about it? Um, because, you know, it used to be that addiction was considered a moral failing of some sort, you know, like you were making a, a deliberate choice with this part of your brain and you should be able to make a different choice. And now we know it's much more complex than that, right? Correct, yes. And uh, the, the, the key is, uh, and for my specialty of addiction medicine, that was the big breakthrough because when I first started in the field in 67, addiction was viewed as a crime. Why treat a crime? Now we know addiction is a brain disease and it's a brain disease that has very specific genetic components, environmental components, that uh, has specific uh, uh, neurochemical disruptions in the brain that leads to uh, dysfunctional behaviors. Now, the dysfunctional behaviors need to be addressed, you know, whether it's family or job or uh, if there's an illegal component to it, you need to address it legally. But you have to look at the source of it. And what we're learning is continued areas of research, which uh, this is type of things that I talk to the patients and I share in our staff meetings. It, it, the, every thought, the mood, and emotion, there's a chemical reaction in the brain. And it starts with a series of neurotransmitters. And the neurotransmitters, it's lock and key. The, these are neuroproteins that go in and fit into the lock, the lock of the receptors turns on and off uh, and out comes uh, eventually an emotion or a thought. But there's a whole series of things that happen prior to that. Um, the science of genomics is the study of these neuroproteins and how they're produced. These neuroproteins go up fit into these receptors, the glutamate receptor, which is the uh, stimulatory receptor, the GABA receptor, which is the inhibitory receptor, dopamine that determines, uh, uh, regulates, called hedonic regulation. Well, what addiction does is produce hedonic dysregulation, which means that you cross the line and you don't feel right unless you use. Trauma does the same thing. Trauma produces hedonic dysregulation. And part of it is the surge of cortisol, the fight or flight. Fight, flight, or freeze. And that's a neurochemical reaction. And so the work that you have done the trauma-informed care has looked at the substance disorder, the mental health, and the trauma component. And it turns out that individuals that relapse, uh, go into treatment, learn, 
motivated to not do it again, go out and relapse. Unresolved trauma is a major component of it. And in a webinar, Keith Loring talked about trauma and addiction. And one of the quotes uh, was from Carl Jung, until you make the unconscious conscious, you call it fate. And I think my opinion, you, you know, when you and I've interacted, that's what brain spotting does. Brain spotting kind of like say where the action is and what you need to work on. It's not only, I think, you know, I, I'm, you know, I learned from about brain spotting from you, but I think brain spotting and those techniques are both therapeutic and diagnostic. And uh, I think the techniques of uh, tapping that you do, you put sympathetic re-regulation. You have this surge and in, in the sympathetic, the fight or flight, and these are techniques to re-regulate it. Uh, some of the concepts you've introduced that I think makes sense to me is the polyvagal theory, because the, the, the calming of that is parasympathetic. So yes. I'm starting yeah. to see these things integrate. Yeah. And I think up until now, people haven't even understood it. Like when we talk about this fight, flight, freeze response, this is not something that we have control over. It is, um, I often will you know, say to the clients, it's like a more primitive part of your brain hijacks your logical thinking brain and has you, you know, basically your whole body responding as if you're being chased by a bear in the woods. Right. Um, your body, when the brain, the, the and I, it's the amygdala, right? That's the main right. sort of culprit here. When your amygdala or your emotional center of your brain uh, determines that there's a threat, right. then this whole biochemical response, fight, flight, freeze occurs. And you really don't have control over the initiation of that. And people who have had a lot of trauma tend to have uh, almost overactive, right? Amygdalas where they're seeing the bear everywhere. Right. They see danger everywhere and that, that mechanism is always going off, right? right. And then yeah. uh, the amygdala is a, a central processing and then these receptors up there like uh, 5-HT2 receptor, that's, a, that's perception. So you mm -hmm. end up receiving that's who you are. You are the bear you're running from the bear in the woods and that's how you will always be. And then you don't want right. to be that way. So you encapsulate it, the, the, the trauma capsule you've talked about it. And then, then your techniques stop working, you know, because the one of the ways to combat is to drink a whole lot of alcohol. And then eventually there's right. to that. And you say, well, that's not a good coping technique. So, right. uh, but, and treatment. well, then what I wanted to say to that is, so I think it does lend credence to the idea that people are self-medicating, you know, when they are using drugs, alcohol, or whatever other addictive process, because it's basically the same, right? The, the science or the biochemistry of addiction, whether you're drinking or using drugs, overeating, smoking cigarettes, or doing gambling or addicted to sex or working out, right? The process in the brain is the same, right. pretty much, right? Yeah. So, so when we, when we are, when we're dysregulated with that neurological, the, the neurons are dysregulated, the amygdala is saying danger, danger everywhere, everything in your brain is all firing at once. No wonder people are turning to these 
addictive behaviors as a brilliant strategy, as a way to self-soothe, a way to sort of self-medicate and try to quell some of that dysregulation, right? That's really kind of what's happening. Yeah, and from an addiction medicine perspective, the the self-medication is an initial thing and then the addiction takes over. In other words, if, if you had control, you'd use a little bit until it calmed it down. And a lot of people, you know, do that. You know, drink a little alcohol, smoke a little weed, uh, and so there's no moral characteristics to a chemical. It works mm -hmm. until it stops working, and there appears to right. be a genetic component to the loss of control, and there's a trauma component. And so yeah. a little bit works for self-medication. A whole lot. It takes on a life of its own and if you yes. need a whole lot then it's the misuse it's not working anymore it goes beyond self-medication and addictive process states all this so they're kind of like triggers and then yes. the triggers kicks off an addictive process and addictive process takes a life of its own and then when you unwind the situation you uh like at Avery Lane, you work on what are the triggers to start down this path? Mm -hmm. Right, right. Drugs. So when we look at, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, the drugs work for a lot of people. You know, you take two glasses a night for the rest of your life and there are actually some health benefits. I'm not advocating that, but a lot of people drink socially and don't have a problem. And then right. 15% have a serious problem. And then it stops being an ineffective form of self-medication. And then that's when you have to start using recovery strategies, a whole different type of approach uh, to deal with it, which is what yeah. recovery is about. And I think that people really, I think the general public still lacks uh, information and, about what addiction and recovery, you know, what addiction is and what recovery really entails. I mean, still, you know, we get, clients or the families of clients who come to our program and think, well, my person's going to go live at this rehab place for 30 days, maybe 60 days, and they're going to come back cured and they're going to be all, everything's going to be good again. And, and I wish we could say it was that simple or with you as a prescribing doctor, you know, some people think, well, I'll just get some medicine and the magic pill will fix it all. It, right. It's not so simple, is it? <laughs> That's why I like that uh, trauma workshop that you have because there's many uh, of the clients on that trauma workshop that have been through Avery Lane and they're still working on the issue. Now there's different, uh, you know, paths to recovery. I happen to be deeply involved in AA and I read the passages of the AA big book that helped me deal with the current situation I am, which you know well, because you just came over to visit me. I, I uh, tore my knee up in a, playing basketball. And so I'm sitting here in my hospital bed, feeling sorry for myself. And I read that uh, 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 passage of the, the back of the big book that says, now we've entered the world of the spirit. I try to transcend all of this into a, uh, you know, a spiritual view of life. And that's, of course, what, what you, the, the thing that you do with TJ is really good. Check the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual. 
And so I yes. got physical and then I got to get up there to the spiritual and get all that in, or that exercises that you do, that check-in that you do and those meditations are very helpful. Yeah. Well, that's what, yeah, what we're, what we've really discovered, and, and I hope that the field really starts to move in this direction, and we'll get more to that, but um, is this holistic approach that we can't just treat addiction from the social approach, or just from the physiological or biochemical, or just from the mental slash emotional, or even just the spiritual alone, that we really have to address it from all four of those or five, you know, more or more areas, right? To really help people create change. They've got to address all of those. That's the model that you've, that you stress that I really have embraced. Uh, not only because of what it brings to the treatment field, but also I've seen what it does for people like me and other people in recovery. Because we have to know that working on your recovery as a lifetime situation. I know that uh, another section in the big book on acceptance, you know, it's really difficult to, at 83, to accept that, you know, I've damaged my knee by attempted having a good exercise program. Well, didn't right. work. So that affects you. So we could even say that that's a trauma, you know, it, this, this injury is a trauma. And if we were to address it therapeutically, we would have to look at the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual components, right? Physically, right. you might need to get medical care. You need uh, PT. Maybe you need medication to manage pain, like whatever that may be. Then we have to deal with how it's affected you mentally and emotionally to not be able to do the activities that you love, that being laid up in, in a bed and being isolated. Um, right. Spiritually, it's impacted you. Where am I at in my life? You know, maybe I can't do the things I used to love doing. Now what? Now what do I do? What's right. my what's my purpose even sometimes, you know, people, it can, trauma can become very existential. Like, what am I doing here? What is the purpose of my life if I can't do what I used to be able to do? So right. we look at addiction and trauma through those same lenses from all those different perspectives and different techniques or approaches or interventions are required in each of those areas. Yeah, that's uh, definitely the, what, you teach at Avery Lane and what I'm going through now. And I think what recovering people have to uh, look at what, what, what your core is and then what you have to do to add on. I know that, that some of the people in your workshop said, well, the core of AA helped them, but that didn't deal with the trauma and they have to add on. You have got to do what works for you. And, yes, uh, exactly. And that there is no one size fits all treatment either. No. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's individualized. That's the other piece to this. Not only does it need to be holistic, it needs to be individualized because what works for you is not going to work for someone else necessarily. Yeah. And then the role of where do psychedelics fit in? Uh, I know for example, me, I hadn't used any psychedelics for a very long period of time, but I had a a golf cart accident, the golf cart flipped on the back. There's a story there of, you know, sports injuries. That seems to be my dominant theme. And uh, 
I fractured poor ribs, punctured a lung, ended up in the hospital. The physical part actually did surprisingly well, but the uh, the trauma memories of the golf cart flipping over persisted. And so I took psilocybin uh, therapy because as, a, as you pointed out, there's a psilocybin research center up here at UCSF. And I took psilocybin uh, in a very controlled situation in my sacred place in Lake Tahoe and the, the trauma memories disappeared. But I got deep into intergenerational trauma because I have a Native American background. And it was interesting. That's the only time I cried. So if you're going to do psychedelic therapy, you have to have preparation, what your goals are, and recognize that stuff is going to come out that you never thought would come out. Yes. And having someone with you, I think we both are on the same page with this. Um, when you're doing, you know, there's some people doing a, these psychedelic assisted therapies where you're on your own, but having a trained professional who knows about how to handle this type of material, if it comes up, who's trained, they, in fact, we here in San Francisco at CIIS, which is a California Institute of Integral Studies, they have a year long certification program to train licensed mental health professionals like myself in how to do psychedelic assisted therapies, right. not even necessarily, um, you know, like getting into the administration of it, which is more the medical side, but like us as sitters, we are, we're sitters for someone having a psychedelic experience there to help them support during the process if stuff comes up, but then also the before and after, the setting of intentions, the integration aspect, making right. sense of your experience and how does it determine what you do with your life next, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's the way. It's exciting to see a whole field of psychedelic medicine set setting, training, certification uh, develop. Mm -hmm. Because what what ha the, the other than ketamine, uh, and I think eventually NDMA, but I'd like to see the plant hallucinogens go above ground. You know, I'm I'm here in the San Francisco area, as you know it. A lot of it going on, but it's underground because uh, there's still a Schedule One drug, which is nonsense. You know, it's it's not addicting. Uh, mm -hmm. There are side effects of this medication, but as doctor doc, uh, at the seminar, there's actually less side effects to this drug group than there is to uh, the classic antidepressants. So side effects is if if you view it as medicine, side effects are something happened with medicine, then you know, you try to minimize them and how to deal with them. So, you know, it's a very exciting for me to see a whole field develop, just like, you, like you've said, and the mental right. health professionals like yourself uh, starting to embrace it, training, certification, because a lot of people out there doing it that, you know, are self-described psychedelic therapists, but the, you don't know they're, they're their training and their conditions and how they do it. And that's not the way to do it. If, if I refer somebody to you, I know your training, I know your credentials, I know your reputation, it's right above board. So it's, it's underground, but for the, and there's also like us, uh, you know, we're experiencing the drug culture. It doesn't, 
we'll go into the drug culture if we think we, you know we want to find psilocybin or something majority of people won't do that they want to go to a doctor a therapist they want to get a known dosage of a medication they want to have it in a, a set setting so that there's a study that says until it's rescheduled and above ground 70 percent of people that need it for refractory depression for ptsd for end of life won't take it because they don't want to go into the underground and that's sure. very uh, it, it's always amazing to me that i took lsd you know in the 60s for a spiritual experience i took uh psilocybin recently for PTSD. I did it in the same place. Uh, I had a guide set in the setting and it was as legal, illegal now as it was then. Yeah. But I knew that, you know, that's our world. Most people won't, won't do that. Most people won't enter into this world. And that means lots of people that need it can't get it. Yes. Right. And you, I like that you called it medicine because that is how people are referring to it. It is, it is plant-based or, or if it's, you know, manufactured, it, it is considered medicine, the psychedelic, um, the, the psychedelics themselves. It has yeah. to be viewed as medicine. Yes. Um, speaking of medicine, I did want to touch upon another, um, development in more recent years. I think, especially with its level of acceptance is MAT or medication assisted therapies. Can you briefly tell us a little bit about what you've seen MAT bring to our field? Well, for a very long time, uh, medication meant methadone. And then there was psychosocial, and they're very, very separate. But then you started seeing the, the need for additional providers uh, of complex conditions that weren't uh, met with just the psychosocial or the highly, highly regimented methadone clinic. So you started seeing breakthroughs. One of the big breakthroughs was buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist antagonist. And then, and I was, uh, my, I was involved in the team that helped develop that. And then you start seeing naltrexone, which is opiate receptor antagonist. And that originally it was for uh, opiate overdose, but now they found out that it attenuates the effects of alcohol. Then you started seeing uh, education of programs that become medicalized, like Many of the programs in San Francisco. We had a, in our webinar, Dr. Aiko um, has a large program at HR360 that's a MAT program. And it is not a methadone program. It uses buprenorphine. Individuals come in, have intense opiate craving, they get buprenorphine, the craving goes down, and then they're open to the broad based psychosocial. Uh, aspects. Now that population has a much more intensive need for rehabilitation, housing, jobs, this that, and the other thing. But you're starting to see it uh, permeate uh, programs that deal uh, up the socioeconomic scale, like uh, Avery Lane. And, mm -hmm. But there, it's we spend a lot of time evaluating the individual, what the therapy needs are and what the role of medication is. And then, as you know, we have different 
careful strategies. Uh, you know, the trend is towards, you know, a lot of the patients come in and they've been given Valium by their doctors and become Valium dependent. And we, so they use alcohol and Valium and have negative consequences, but they still have anxiety triggers. So the trend is towards gabapentin, uh, hydroxidine, the, the sedative antihistamines, in combination with the techniques that the therapists uh, teach, like yoga, exercise, to help calm the anxiety. And of course, the techniques that you use, uh, because the anxiety is sympathetic dysregulation. So it's a holistic approach, all focused on uh, calming the firing brain, which gives out a signal use and then translate that into a signal, the firing brain use these techniques, uh, whether they be pharmacological or psychosocial and then work your tools of recovery. Mm -hmm. Yes. Again, no one magic, you know, pill or treatment that can address it all. Um, in fact, I was talking recently to a friend of mine I went to college with who's a psychiatrist who was saying that you know, we, we don't do very well at medicating PTSD. It doesn't make it go away. You know, the right. medication alone is not sufficient. Just right. like we're finding that um, therapy alone without medication sometimes is not enough. And these medication-assisted therapies, the Suboxone, Naltrexone, and they come in all different forms. There's injectables, there's sublinguals, you know, they have all these different ways to try to prevent people from, you know, abusing them and all of that. I think they are a wonderful addition and they have made a huge difference for a lot of our clients to help with right. cravings or with sometimes, you know, the reason people get hooked on opioids in the first place is because they have a pain issue. They have a right. physical health thing happening and they still need pain management. Um, many of our clients do well with something like Suboxone because not only does it manage their pain, it keeps them from craving the abusive aspects of abusing the opioids, right? I agree. Yeah. So let me ask you this, as we start to wind this down, Dr. Smith, what would you like to see as the future of addiction treatment, mental health care, psychedelics? Like what's your vision for, for where we can go in our field? Well, we're in the midst of the biggest drug epidemic in U.S. history. And the things that we have learned about how to treat addiction should be available to all people that have addictive disorders. In fact, they're not. So I would like to see, first of all, the techniques be refined. So we have good protocols. Uh, proven protocols. And then I would like to see that per permeate the broader medical system and made available to all people that have substance abuse disorders. The, the quality of treatment, I work in all sectors, high end, middle end, low end. Uh, the quality of treatment is tremendously variable, which is not usually what you see in medicine. In medicine, if you have diabetes and you're in a rural area, uh, then you get a treatment about to consider the culture and the resources. And if you're in an urban area, you get a treatment, you know, to consider the culture. 
that's not the way it works with with addictive disorders. That the treatment is so variable and access is so variable. Uh, in some of the areas that have the biggest addiction problems, the access to treatment is very limited. And then what happens when the person relapses, you blame the victim. It's kind of like you have diabetes, you don't have treatment for diabetes available, you have diabetic ketoacidosis and you blame the person. Well, yeah. certain amount of he has to bear responsibility for lifestyle issues. But, uh, you know, you at least you ought to be even, even playing field. I think also I uh, am excited about the advance of brain science and understanding addiction. The more we understand, I think there'll be a whole new generation of medication for medication-assisted treatment. I would like to have, and I'll, you know, I kind of stretch the envelope on this. I would like to see psychedelics be considered part of MAT, psychedelic-assisted treatment. When I present that idea, as you know, it's controversial, but that's what it the future is. Yes, I agree with you. I think there is a lot of potential with the psychedelic therapies and just, we need to know more. We still need to know more and we need to know about the long-term effects and potential addictive effects and you know all those things, of course. But what I like about it is that there is a ton of research happening. It's really astounding. Right. A ton of research happening all over the world and very reputable, esteemed you know, universities and medical centers and whatever. And they are really doing high quality research. Um, the clinical trials, the way the MDMA clinical trials to try to get it legalized is phenomenal. We both know people involved with that project. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also very encouraged about the field. And I think what I would like to see to just add on to what you're saying is more of the integration. I would yeah. like to see more integration across different disciplines with the medical piece and the psychological piece and the spiritual, like I'd like more places to really be holistic in their treatment approaches. And I agree, it should be available to anybody, regardless of their ability to pay. That's right. the other thing I'd like to see also. So um, I fear, go ahead. Well, it goes both ways too, because they've now seen the value of the introduction of spirituality into the mainstream medicine. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, uh, I always love working with you and keep up Thank the good you. work and thanks for your visits. Thank you, Dr. Smith, and thank you for your time today and sharing your wisdom, uh, experience, strength, and hope. And we wish you a very, you know, healthy, speedy recovery so you can be up and about as soon as possible. Um, we, we all wish that for you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks everyone for tuning in today. If you like this podcast, please do share it, like, comment rate it so we get more ratings on you know all the different platforms that means more people can find it and can you know learn more about these different approaches and techniques and all the wonderful people that i like to bring on the show thanks again viewers and listeners thanks dr smith and tune in next time bye bye 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.